we've had a few salt talks about the East and the West, or the West and the rest. Um, why the West rules for now, <laughs> for now, uh, from historian from Stanford, Ian Morris. Uh, then, thanks to the Asian Society, uh, we had Kishore Mababani saying, no, has the West lost it? Can the rest save it? So there's a dialogue going on. And here in San Francisco, and here with something that calls itself the long now, we want to be part of that. Art is a big part of it. And there's shifts going on. Uh, one of the things I learned from our speaker before up in the green room was um, for quite a while now, uh, the place where you bought art was New York. And the second major source of buying art was London. That's no longer true. Now the second major place to go to buy art is Hong Kong. So there's something going on. And our speaker, Shohania Raphael, is in the thick of it because she's the director of a brand new museum that is going to be a major focal point for all of that. Please welcome Shohania Raphael. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Thank you very much. And it really is a privilege and honor to be here to introduce to you our new museum, M Plus in Hong Kong. And for those of you who don't know it, I know this is the West Kowloon site, that is the museum that I'm going to be talking about. And throughout the talk, I'm going to make use of our collection, firstly and importantly, to give you a sense of what this collection looks like its form, its shape, to illustrate how we are looking at the world and making our stories from the works by artists, architects, designers, and filmmakers. The collection also acts as a prompt for ideas and a lens through which we can think about the context in which this museum is coming into being. The collections date from the mid-20th century and on into the future. And our location in Hong Kong shapes that collection, its texture, structure, and content. With the root growing, in, with the root and the energy of that root growing out of the rich visual culture of Hong Kong first, and then Asia and beyond. So what does Hong Kong look like when seen through some of the works in the M Plus collection? And I want to begin my talk tonight looking at a quick look at the work of Hong Kong artist Irene Zhou. Working in the medium of ink, her work is full of controlled energy. 
Now, ink, even in its contemporary expression, draws on formal East Asian and Chinese forms where ink has a long history of landscape painting and calligraphy. The innovation of contemporary ink was in the development of a unique abstract language. And in the mid-20th century, Hong Kong artists played a key role in this development, including Irene Zhou. In this painting, Irene's abstract eye offers a perfect emblem through which to enter into the M Plus collection journey from Hong Kong and beyond. The first of these two slides is by Holly Lee, whose work The Great Pageant Show is one of the most recognizable of her works, where portraiture is central to her practice and is manipulated. The model here is an amalgamation of Queen Elizabeth II and a Miss Hong Kong beauty pageant winner, predominantly uh, presented prominently in front of a Qing court painting depicting an equestrian event in the Qinglong reign by Giuseppe Castaglione, an Italian Jesuit missionary in China uh, between 1715 and 1760. The series from which this great pageant show is drawn from consists of 12 conceptual photographs created between 1994 and 2000 and muses on the past and future of Hong Kong around the time of the transfer of sovereignty in 1997. Together with Ni Haifeng, the subject being an image of a fire hydrant, you know, a residue of the great um, British um, Empire. It is a print, and the artist has looked at the graffiti and its calligraphy. Made a decade prior to Lee, these two works together gives one a sense of the confluence of histories that touch on this period of intense change. Greg Girard photographs Hong Kong, and it's the Hong Kong we know for its dense urban landscape. A vertical city, crowded narrow streets, this quintessential image of Kowloon, walled city, captures all that and more. The king of Kowloon, who used the streets, walls, posters, footpaths, doorways as his canvas, covering them with his ideogrammic calligraphic symbols, layers upon layers of mark making, much of it King of, of King, of, King of Kowloon's work now exists as documentary images made by others, and this is by another mountain man who is the architect, designer, and artist Stanley Wong. Now, Hong Kong wouldn't be Hong Kong without Cantor Pop, which is an abbreviation for Cantonese pop. And this album cover was designed by Alan Chan for the Cantor Pop diva Anita Mui a symbol of the popular form's highest glories, with a fan base and live content practice that reaches mainland China, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan, and formed a highly influential base for song, performance, and soundtrack for the great era of Hong Kong film culture. The plastic watermelon ball, ball is attributed to the engineer turned industrialist 
Chang Chen, who developed this two-color extrusion blow molding process that yields the balls now familiar ubiquitous pattern all over Hong Kong. Chang is said to have been inspired by the Yangtze River and its tributary, the Jiangling, whose colored, colors always remained distinct in its confluence. From the iconic 70s headquarters in San Pokang, Star Industrial now produces over 600 items. These Red A products, known for their quality, durability, affordability, continue to be sold locally and internationally. And part of Red A's success comes from the company's ability to adapt product lines to the needs of the times and for different markets particularly markets in the developing countries. So not only are ready products ubiquitous in Hong Kong, many of their designs are now recognized as iconic examples of non-canonical design that represent Hong Kong's vernacular culture. Now, as the tram is for San Francisco, so is the red taxi to Hong Kong. And this playful sculpture of a lopsided and skewered taxi inevitably draws the audience to think about perspective. Placed in public locations in Hong Kong and Guangzhou, such as taxi queues, parking lots, and the waterfront, Amy Chung's sculpture challenged public perception of what is real. Another of Holly Lee's work, Bauhinia 1997, chooses to engage with the stylized Bauhinia flower, which is the emblem that appears on the flags and official seals of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, as well as various souvenir products that were available at the time. Continuing to use, to use a distinct photographic language and oil painting-like cracks that she has been developing, this image of the Bauhinia flower is set against the typical Hong Kong skyline, commonly depicted in stamps and postcards. Made in the year of Hong Kong's handover, which marks the agreement of the one country, two systems. Vic Muniz, Vic Muniz's postcard captures Hong Kong, a city that is still one of the world's leading international financial centers with a free market economy. Now, these fine line drawings by Wilson Cher riff on the iconic skyscrapers of Hong Kong's skyline, and the HSBC building and the Bank of China are those very institutions that are the engines of the city. Michael Wolff's astonishing photographic series, and in these we see Hong Kong's vertical towers that rise in clusters across the city and point to one of the most populated and dense cityscapes in the world, and that is his inspiration. With a population of 7.5 million in 2019, the city's real estate market that deals in the most expensive housing in the world produces a living environment that forces families to live in this intense proximity. These are the interiors of those very same towers that Wolf has now entered. If this is a snapshot that captures some of the visual vocabulary of Hong Kong, Asia forms the structural base 
in which MPLUS operates. In July this year, McKinsey Global Institute published a fascinating paper titled Asia's Future is Now. Now the opening paragraph of the paper reads, for years Western observers and media have been talking about the rise of Asia in terms of its massive future potential. But the time has come for the rest of the world to update its thinking because the future arrived faster than expected. One of the most dramatic developments of the past 30 years has been Asia's soaring consumption and its integration into global flows of trade, capital, talent and innovation. In the decades ahead, Asia's economies will go from participating in these flows to determining their shape and direction. Indeed, in many areas, from the internet to trade and luxury goods, they already are. The question now is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, but how Asia will lead. Asia is on track to top 50% of global GDP by 2040, by which time it will drive 40% of the world's consumption, thus representing a real shift in the world's economic center of gravity. Consumption is now local instead of being solely exported to the West, which means less reliance on imports, with more than half of the goods being traded now being within the Asia-Pacific region. It is an intra-regional exchange. Now, this is a still from a video work titled 75 Watt, and the London-based artist designers Revital Cohen and Tour Van Balen worked with the choreographer Alexandra Whiteley to design a product whose only function is to choreograph its own manufacture. Produced in Zhongshan, Guangdong province, by assembly line workers who had been specifically trained to perform Whiteley's choreography, the object of this work reflects on mass production and the role of scientific management in the mechanization. And in this case, it's the human body in the name of efficiency. After studying and working in Japan for 10 years, Vo Chonya viewed his return to Vietnam to practice architecture as both an opportunity and a responsibility. The Wind and Water Bar was Nya's first project built purely out of bamboo, and he chose this material for its low cost, ecological value, its strength, and its localness. It exemplifies the environmental and social agenda driving his work, which looks to reconnect human-built forms with nature and greenery. The sketches and model reveal how each bamboo structural unit is constructed and bundled to form the dome structure in, in a way that maximizes the flexibility and strength of the, of the material. Jengo Gu, sample room, perfect literal example of the known manufacturing base of China. The, pro the, pro the proliferation that is made in China. But with this production, not only has the economic process been rapid, so has urbanization, 
and the growth of a huge middle class with a substantial disposable income base. This urbanization has fueled an economic growth that has opened doors to education, health, and wealth. In 1983, a then relatively unknown Zaha Hadid won the competition to design a leisure club atop Hong Kong's peak. One of her competition proposal images is pictured here, and the brief called for, in quotation, an extremely luxurious residential club, end of quote, that would provide dramatic views from its site on the peak. Hadid propose, Hadid's proposed scheme was roughly divided into four stacks and sharply angular layers, with a void in the, in the middle housing the club facilities. The result provided a formal and architectural vo vocabulary that was jarring for its time, beating out 500 other entries and earning praise from the jury. While the scheme remained unbuilt, it helped cement the, Iraq the Iraqi-born, London-based architect's reputation at the forefront of her discipline. Hadid continued to defy the limits of possibility in her work through unabashed formal experimentation to propose an entirely new language for architecture. The digital, internet, and online world is a given in Asia. Today, this accounts for half, which is 2.2 billion, of the world's internet use, users, with China and India accounting for a third of this use between them. The M-plus collections reflect on the highly innovative use and application of digital tools within the spheres of design in architecture, as well as online artist projects. Young He Chang Heavy Industries are a South Korean-based artist duo who pioneered making art with the web being their sole platform. M-plus acquired their entire catalogue of works including works that they are yet to make in the future, which they will continue to add to our collection through a program of gifting. Isaac Julian's beautiful multi-channel immersive digital installation, 10,000 Waves, drew its inspiration from this milieu and activity, but cited his protagonists in an idyllic mythic East Asia while also using digital technologies to realize these dreamlike sequences. What is real, what is simulacra, is opaque. Now, I hope with this first suite of works, I have set the scene. These, are op these opening collection images, coupled with factual analytics of the wider context of the region, gives you a perspective on what I'm now about to share. In this rare example of a collectible work by the King of Kowloon, we see a fragment of West Kowloon, the site on which M-plus is being constructed. In 1991, that is what the site looked like. In 2017, that is what it looks like now. So the West Kowloon district was built on this parcel of reclaimed land, 40 hectares, on which the ambition of the district was to build 17 cultural institutions, but by 
2005, seven of them will be realized. This is an aerial view of that site with the M plus construction in, in the middle of it there. So what does this site look like? This is a master plan that was devised by Sir Norman Foster. And Norman Foster, um, a principle of the Foster master plan was that the West Kowloon would be pedestrian and all of the transport infrastructure would be in the basement. These are the cultural facilities and you can see 23 hectares of open space. Subway, metro access, ferries, the airport, connectivity, a central part of any cultural district and the connectivity in West Kowloon is extraordinary. The airport on which um, M-plus is in minutes to the West Kowloon station and the airport expressway, the airport reaches half the world's population in five hours flying time and we already have 74 million people arriving into Hong Kong every year, 2018. There is a major express rail link into mainland China and currently 50,000 people are dropping in a month. The capacity of that rail link is 100,000 a day. The cruise terminal, 80 million people come every year. So what do the financials look like for the museum? Always a good question and in the public domain. The background for the financial arrangements are that 21.6 billion Hong Kong, which is approximately 2.8 billion US dollars, was given over by the Hong Kong government directly to the West Kowloon District Authority that runs this whole project. At the time, in 2008, it, um, it was understood that the retail and dining and entertainment would provide a steady source of income for the recurrent needs of cultural institutions. Very clearly at the time, there was not, well, there was no knowledge about what cultural institutions actually cost to run. Those of us in the audience who work there know this. Um, the public infrastructure work would be um, supported through government, and that is fundamentally the integrated basement. As, as, you, as I said before, all of the transport infrastructure sits in the basement, but this is a very, very complex piece of engineering because we're, we're basically in the sea. Um, nice idea, but very expensive to realize. By 2017, it was very clear that this financial arrangement was not going to be possible to continue. So a new enhanced financial arrangement was announced. West Kowloon Cultural District Authority will be granted the development rights. So a third of that 40 hectares is there to develop commercial endeavor. Hotels, offices, residential, and so on. And that development will be done through an HOR uh, for uh, the hotels, the offices and residents, through a build-operate-transfer arrangement. And this shared rental from the facilities would drive um, income. Now, this is one of the most valuable parcels of land in the world, this, this, this 40 hectares. 
And um, it's a very interesting business model for developing cultural infrastructure. And we are only just beginning this project. I have a short video to play to you on what M-Plus looks like now. M-Plus is a new museum of visual culture in Hong Kong, currently under construction, ready for the public within a year and a half. This is an extraordinary opportunity, a piece of cultural infrastructure like no other in the world. We've reached the top floor of the top of the building. It's an important first step towards that final opening push. And that gives us the opportunity really to make a change from being a construction project to a development and delivery project. We could not decide on the name of the museum. Then we said a museum plus, which is so original. And today we are talking in this beautiful weather and we look very much forward to the opening and be a premier museum in the Asia Pacific. So this is the back? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that looks about it's always good to see the real spaces because we've been looking at the floor plan for almost five years. It's gigantic. We've got a lot of work to do. The M plus facade building is so special because the facade are not typical uh, material like the one we use in Hong Kong, normally in aluminium and glass. 
Our facade is a precast unit with a ceramic tile in a modular system and it also serves as a sunshed to the office tower. Whereas the uh, podium facade, it is an enclosed design to provide an optimum environment for the gallery. The building that was developed actually became in two parts, the main building where the galleries are and the conservation storage facility. It is a building that will basically house the collection when it's not on display. It's also combined with the conservation laboratories, which are the areas where conservators, who are the doctors of the art, will be actually taking care of the physical care of the object. This location on West Kowloon, facing Hong Kong Island, is the postcard view of Hong Kong. So for us to be making a museum on this site brings a whole other level of understanding about what Hong Kong is now delivering to the world and to Hong Kong. So what are we delivering? A new museum dedicated to collecting, exhibiting and interpreting visual culture of the 20th and 21st centuries. And we are indeed building one of the largest museums of modern and contemporary visual culture. It, has, it is 65,000 square meters of museum space with 17,000 square meters of galleries and display space, 18 levels, 33 galleries, three cinemas, and a mediatheque. Our location is extremely important. The local and the international, the cosmopolitan spirit of Hong Kong, that's the context on which uh, this museum is being developed for, for Asia's 21st century. We're a global museum, and our uh, context in Asia shapes our work, and our voice is distinctive, and it reflects the uniqueness of our time and place. And why is M Plus relevant? It's very important to say that M Plus is a museum that looks out at the world from its base in Hong Kong. And it is a place where we can learn about who we are, how we see the world, how we see ourselves, and how ideas are shared and our voice. It's very important for a museum to have a voice. We will be distinctive, knowledgeable, and accessible. And of course, everything we do is more than a building. It is an amplification of the relationship between our content and audiences. But our building, our building is part of our collection, a collection that embraces architecture, we have an incredible building designed by the Swiss architects, Herzog and Muren, and in their inimitable way, uh, what is, looks like a very simple structure has a complex internal presence. And of course, as you heard from the construction workers, fair-faced concrete, art concrete as they call it, <laughs> is a very much part of HDM language. We have very... Um, traditional white cube museum spaces, as well as one suite of three galleries that pay homage to East Asian architecture, bamboo-lined galleries.
Now, the Sikh collection, our founding M Plus collection, was a major gift of over 1,500 works by Uli Sikh, the eminent collector, and was made in 2012. This collection of works spans the 70s, 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and the 2000s. Uli was among the very first non-Chinese to enter mainland China in the 70s to establish a formal business partnership with Chinese count counterparts, working at that time for the Swiss company Schindler Group, to return later to become the, become the Swiss ambassador to China, North Korea and Mongolia in 1995, and he currently serves on the board of the China Development Bank. His passion for contemporary Chinese art and collecting began primarily as a means of getting to understand culture in which he was now living and working. However, he realized early on, while he was mixing with artists, visiting studios, and seeing exhibitions as they unfolded over these four seminal decades, that there were no institutions in China that was collecting this material. So he decided then to focus his collection development to be a systematic and researched exercise, one that he knew would be the kind of collection a national museum should have been making. He thus began, built an extensive and highly significant and coherent collection of contemporary Chinese art that has established the core collection for M+. What does that collection look like now, after seven years of work? 6,300-odd items, 20% of which are by Hong Kong makers, and 35,000-plus archives, primarily our architecture and design collections. And that, you, what you see, is the global spread of that collection. But we also, let's look at some of the other highlights. Tsang Kwon Chi, who was a Hong Kong-born US artist, part of the East Village art scene in New York in the 80s. And in this still, which is part of that larger series that he made called East Meets West, his project was to photograph himself amongst famous world monuments and tourist sites as a way of inscribing himself onto the world. A major undertaking by this British artist, whose epic work, Asian Fields, um, consists of over 180,000 clay figures that Anthony Gormley made um, um, during a number of workshops that he undertook in Guangdong province. Now, as much as being a social project, it is also a work about public sculpture and questioning authorship. And this work is an example um, of how we collect major global artists for, for Hong Kong. It is the intersection of the international into Asia that drives the primary collection interest. Similarly, Frank Lloyd Wright's work in Japan, designing furniture for the Imperial Hotel, Iwan Band, Guangzhou Opera House, and um, the Kuramata Sushiba. Now, you might have gathered that we are cross-disciplinary. Design and architecture sit very much in the heart of the collection, as does moving image and visual art. 
This cross-disciplinary approach brings a unique uh, voice to the institution of this scale for Asia. And key individuals such as Kuramata and acquiring the entire Sushiba places a focal point for the collection. Iranian artist Munir Farman Farmian is best known for her work in reverse glass painting and mirror mosaic. Here, she designed and made these glass doors for her New York apartment where she lived there in exile for a number of years before returning to Tehran. Indian artist Nalini Malani's proto-cinematic exploration of moving image, Tracy Moffat's cinematic photographs that nudge at the edge of ubiquitous media images of migration, displacement, refuge, and hope. Mona Hatoum's sculpture that uses the iron rods that normally reinforce concrete, and in this case, house fragile blown glass sculpture. Sopia Pitch, a Cambodian artist who uses bamboo, so common in Asia, as building material for, to make his sculpture that echoes the architecture of his birthplace. The British architectural collective Archigram Archive. We acquired their entire archive, and they taught many Hong Kong architects and have had an influential role as architectural theorists. Although they never realized a built project as a collective, they were absolutely certain that they wanted to place their archive with M+, as they always felt that if they had realized any architecture, it would be the city of Hong Kong, the walking city, with elevated walkways and escalators connecting significant parts of the city. A snapshot of collection development that was undertaken in 2018, last year. This is establishment work. This is what it means to make a museum's core collection. Just under a thousand works, but you can note 786 donations. So our philanthropy base is very important. Our collections are already being known and loaned around the world. These are just nine examples of recent loans, but we have loaned to over 76 exhibitions in 19 countries. The museum's role in society. Now, as we build our museum, it's really important for me to build an informed audience base in Hong Kong. And we have been actively developing this since 2015. We run a, an annual summer camp with 100 students, with eight artist makers, and an intensive work on understanding what it means to be artist, designer, architect. We have a rover, a traveling studio, that goes out to the community, to schools, and as public workshops. We use the city as our mobile exhibition space. We did this exhibition called Neon Science, where we crowdsourced from Hong Kongers the best neon in Hong Kong. We, uh, we uh, mapped it. It's an online project. And then we had buses going out at night to look at Neon, because Neon is disappearing and we are collecting that Neon. Neon is refuge in the museum. One of our first mobile exhibitions was on the site of West Kowloon before it became a building site. And we did this exhibition called Inflation, which was looking at contemporary temporary sculpture on the park with inflatables. 
highly, um, uh, it generated a huge amount of debate, and we had over 140,000 people come in a very short space of six weeks that it was on. It was fantastic. While waiting for the museum's cinemas to come online, we work on a screenings program um, that are beginning to cultivate our moving image audiences. And on the site of West Kowloon, since 2016, we have a small M-plus pavilion, which is our laboratory space. And our next exhibition, which will be our 10th since 2016, will be the inaugural SIG Prize. Uli spent uh, 20 years establishing the Contemporary Chinese Art Award in Beijing. But now, with the Implus Museum coming online and with his, uh, with his collection in the museum, we have established the SIG Prize, like the Turner Prize, and we hope to make it one of the most preeminent prizes for uh, contemporary Chinese artists. Now, I am very aware that to come here and speak about a new museum development of the scale and ambition of Implus in Hong Kong now, I must also acknowledge the social unrest that is now our reality. It is a fact that the eyes of the world are focused on the city, and the West is looking east. This time to watch events as they unfold across four months of both peaceful and violent protest. There's no question that we are living in deeply unsettled times. It is intense. The divisions emerging and hardening in the city make for an emotionally exhausting reality. Over 85% of Hong Kong does not own a car. So the transport arterials, the metro, the MTR, our subway system, are vital avenues to move around. This highly efficient public transport system is now being severely tested through weekly confrontations and disruptions that focus on the MTR and, for a while, the airport. I have no crystal ball to be able to suggest how this situation will resolve. We are living in a very divided city. I do think, though, that some of the works in the M-plus collections offer a chance to reflect, to pause, and see what artists have made, sometimes in earlier years, as a means of providing insight into what is happening today. It is a sort of creative tool, a discursive, thought-provoking journey to now. Currently on display at the N-plus pavilion is an exhibition titled Five Artists, Sites Encountered, and the Hong Kong artist Mei Fung's 1989 work, she said, Why Me is being screened. Mei is a founding member of Videotage, an experimental artist-run space established to support moving image artists, with a forum to share ideas, show works, build networks, both, both locally and, and globally slicing historical footage from colonial-era Hong Kong with images of the 1967 riots in Hong Kong. The work explores the ambiguity and uncertainties around identity that the artist felt at the time of making the work. 
1989, so 30 years ago when she made this, Hong Kong was preparing for handover. And the push and pull of that time feels strangely apt 30 years later in 2019. We opened this exhibition three days before the protests began. We had no idea that this was coming and the exhibition was in planning for eight months before. Samson Young's We Are The World. Since 2015, MPLUS has co-presented, together with the Hong Kong Arts Development Council, the Hong Kong's pavilion in, at the Venice Biennale. Now, in 2017, Samson, who is, comes out of new music and composition, com was commissioned by MPLUS to make a new work. And he chose to approach the pavilion via the cipher of Songs for Disaster Relief cogitating on the failed utopian project of global disaster relief and that hoped to fund change through re releasing pop songs, sung by the likes of icons such as Bob Geldof. In We Are the World, Young worked with the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions Choir and asked them to vocalize a familiar song. It's a kind of unlearning of what it means to sing, it's a new music technique where the voice whispers the song. You can barely hear, we are the world. Now, looking at the world today, it it, it, looking at the work today and the world today, it immediately suggests an international context. You know, we are the world. And Hong Kong is on a fault line, one that feels intensely local, but has echoes beyond. Currently showing at the Hong Kong Venice Pavilion, again, we co-commissioned, is the work of Shirley Stakeholders, Hong Kong in Venice. Her commissioned work, Negotiated Differences, is a new work. It's a, it's a sculpture made of singular pieces of turned wood. Each piece is unique, often in the shape of an everyday object a chair leg, a ten pin, a baseball bat, a rolling pin, a candelabra. Each of these turned wood sculptures is connected to another using piping joints that have been made with 3D printing. Using the traditional Chinese furniture-making technique of joinery, the sculpture uses no nails, pins or glue. Rather, the work is connected together through balance. A rhizomatic structure that weaves its way through the various spaces of the Venice Pavilion, the sculpture negotiated difference can never be viewed in its entirety from a single point of view. You need to walk through and around it to see it. Should one section come undone, the work collapses and needs to be reassembled and brought back into its wholeness as balance. It is this work that you have seen, the bringing together of exceptional art, architecture, design, architect and moving image that makes M plus and our collective work in the museum so important. Today, now more than ever, the civic functions 
of museums are needed. And MPLUS will be the first global, modern, and contemporary visual culture museum based in Asia. Our equivalent organizations in the world would be San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, or the Modern in New York, Centre Pompidou in Paris. It is a place to slow down, to reflect, to learn, to be challenged, to enjoy, to share, to gather together. Museums belong to people, and it is in these spaces that we are provided with an affirmation of critical, creative expression of the work of artists, architects, designers, and makers. They provide the essential intellectual nourishment we need. Thank you. Frank asks, is there a perspective to art that is uniquely Asian? Um, is there a perspective to art that is uniquely Asian? Yes, I think you know, each of us brings unique perspectives. And Asia has its own stories, and it responds to those locations and historical realities. That's why I began with ink. Ink is very specific form in East Asia in particular and has a deep history of working with that material. In its modern and contemporary expression, it has taken it into a whole other space of abstraction, an abstraction that was not informed particularly by Western canonical ideas of abstraction. So yes, it does have unique perspective and important unique perspectives that we need to see. So uh, <clears throat> Brian Eno is one of our board members and participates a lot. One of the points he makes is that art is, in many respects, about art. Art or paying artists pay attention to other artists from their own period and artists that precede them, and all the way on back to probably cave art. And so, in a sense, I'm curious how much you think the Asian artists are paying attention mainly to other Asian artists. We're paying attention to some of the Western canon of art. Where, who are they sort of drawing on and who are they basically seeking to surpass? You know, like I said, um, Asia is changing very fast, very rapidly. Mm. Um, and it's highly connected world. It's, it's a very international world as well. Many Asian artists have trained in other parts of the world, mm. in other parts of Asia. Mm. They go from um, some parts of Asia, they go to Russia to train, other parts of the world go to, or parts of Asia go to the UK to train. Mm. But we also find now major schools in Asia and in Hong Kong where students come from intra-regional mm -hmm. um, developments and, and interests. Mm -hmm. So this kind of um, flow of information, mm -hmm. of, of ideas, is now a fact of, of Asia today. It, it's without question. So there isn't a single, singular Asia, as right, it were. Right. <laughs> it's, it's many, many different things, right. many histories, many religions, many languages. So it has a 
a kind of diversity that you see in Europe. Mm -hmm. And you know, Asia is half the world's population. It's a huge place. Right. So in a way, I'm assuming there's more variety in, in Asia than there is in Europe and North America in the sense of I, variety I don't, of cultures, I don't know. variety of artistic traditions. Well, enormous variety in artistic traditions. And what is also very nice to see is, um, yes, training happens all over the world, but also uh, the looking into and back into history that artists are doing now is as important and, and fascinating to watch which bits of history people pick. In Hong Kong, you mentioned 7.5 million people, plus many more than that coming in and out. Um, there's, I assume, a sort of a, a fair number of artists working right there. You've shown some mm -hmm. of their work here. Um, are they aware? I mean, you know, when you're an artist in New York, you know all the other artists in New York. You're paying very close attention. You go to the gallery shows and you lock your studio so they don't steal your ideas and all this kind of thing. Um, do the Hong Kong artists have that sense of themselves as a community? Very think? strong. It's a very, very strong arts, arts community, mm -hmm. design community, film community, mm -hmm. um, and developed wonderful experimental spaces, artist-run spaces as well. So you have that ecology building in Hong Kong, but what's missing is, the big missing piece is um, the museum, the, the big museums. Mm -hmm. There are civil service-run museums in, in Hong Kong, but most of those museums are focusing on Chinese art. Mm -hmm. And Chinese art often with, with great 19th century and earlier collections sitting behind. Mm -hmm. Very important to have those museums as well. But this is the first museum that will be a global institution mm -hmm. that has that cross-disciplinary collections that are looking at the work made in our time. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other thing that I didn't mention, but I should say is, and that you mentioned in the beginning, was how um, the commercial muscle has grown, you know, very rapidly in the last 15 years in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Collectors and the art market is enormous. It's second now behind New York. It's a very, very serious collectors market, and that's a, uh, and they're looking at contemporary art, of course, but also wine, coins, historical Chinese, all of that is happening in Hong Kong because it's, it has a free port. Mm -hmm. The tax, there's no tax on, on the movement of objects. Mm. And, it, and as I said, the disposable income now of a substantial middle class in Asia is looking to art and the art uh, to you know, nourish their lives. So are the customers of those galleries um, mainland Chinese newly come into wealth or people from South Asia, people from all over the world? Who are the customers? Uh, fundamentally Asia, but of course beyond. We mm -hmm. find every March the Art Basel Hong Kong is, uh, is the gathering of the art world clan. We get many museums and their collector and collectors and patrons coming, but also huge numbers of mainland Chinese collectors, collectors from Japan, from South Korea, from Indonesia, and that collector base is growing very seriously. Do they sell art as well, or are they also new to it? They just 
collectors. You mean whether the collectors are, are yeah. speculating? Are they starting to speculate in yeah. trade? Exactly. Yes, there is some, of course. I mean, mm -hmm. a collector wouldn't be a collector if they didn't speculate, and they always want the bargain. They want mm -hmm. to get in early in the market. Mm. Um, but the contemporary art market is, um, it's very hard to income, uh, to understand the rationale behind it. Um, two weekends ago, the big sales of Sotheby were happening in Hong Kong, and over 400 million US dollars worth of sale happened mm -hmm. there over those two days. It's phenomenal. Uh, I can't resist asking a little more on that, because one of the things that sort of drives speculation in art is uh, superstars, sort of uh, artists who become, that's the, the person you want to have. And that's, we see this as the Picasso of the 21st century. I'm getting them early and stuff. Are superstars emerging among the Asian artists? Yes, absolutely. I mean, some of the biggest superstars of world art, international art today, are Asian artists. Many mm -hmm. of them Chinese contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, the 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 auction record that was set two weekends ago was by Japanese artist Nara. You know, mm -hmm. His painting went for something like 35 million mm -hmm. US. An unspeakable amount of money, mm -hmm. but um, yes, there are, there are many many Asian artists that are now superstars, and many of them uh, with studios in in the U.S. as well, like Taiko Chang in New York, mm -hmm. who is a mega star in the right. international art world, and Ai Weiwei, yeah, right? absolutely, all of those artists, yeah. So on the one hand, you've got the sort of the top of the investment level of perspective on art, this incredibly expensive and, and rather magnificent museum going in. <clears throat> I was an artist in the Lower East Side of New York back in the day, and uh, the people I was hanging out with were, of course, on the Lower East Side, because that's where it was cheap to live, yeah. and everything was on the just getting by level. And so there I assume that's going on with many young, yes. ambitious artists in Hong Kong and elsewhere. And then that overlaps into, in a sense, art is always rebellion anyway. Yes. You're always rebelling against the standard art of before, you're rebelling against uh, the man, whoever that you know, uh, institution is seen as. And um, protesters I know in the United States are in awe of the protesters in Hong Kong right now, who seem to have more creative techniques and more creative artistry in a way in, in their protests. Um, that's pretty interesting, bottom-up kind of creativity. What's your perspective on that? It's very interesting to watch the, um, the visual language that's being applied now hmm. in, in Hong Kong. Um, primarily, of course, it's a tool for communication. It has nothing to do with museum per se, but as a museum, we are very interested in that as a visual culture form. Mm -hmm. um, the protesters use uh, the, um, this emblem to describe themselves. They, they talk them about themselves as being like water. So they will flow, they're free-flowing, they're leaderless, they're uh, spontaneous, and so a lot of the material um, that's, being, that's taking place in terms of protest mm -hmm. is digital. Mm -hmm. And it's a digital form as a communication tool. 
and and all of it is unauthored at this at this point because right. they do not want to have a single author. It's not in their interest to do so. Our teams are, are very interested. We are out documenting. We mm. have archives, and so we can document. Mm. We are doing that and researching mm -hmm. um, how. Um, or when and if it enters the collection, it has to go through the usual museum mechanism and process of thinking and looking and um, seeking rights, mm -hmm. who owns these things, and perhaps they are not to be owned, and that's fine, but then it exists in, in, in other kinds of ways. So it's, it's a very, very interesting phenomena mm -hmm. this time. Unlike, say, much, much earlier, um, periods of protest art, which had very clear activist um, <laughs> expressions, you know, like you can, in, in, the, in the US there are the Guerrilla Girls and their whole portfolios of prints mm -hmm. and so on that are very clearly authored and there for distribution. This is a very different uh, mechanism that's, that's taking place in Hong Kong. Um, and the digital tool is phenomenal. So the digital tool is phenomenal and getting more so. Um, how is your museum t dealing with digital? Um, is it everything at this point, or how does that play out? No, it's, it's not everything. Um, we, think, uh, we think very carefully about digital. Mm -hmm. we, have, um, we digitize the collection, as do most museums, and we are in the process of digitizing. Will it be available online? Then? Yeah, yeah. We, we already have um, um, 5,000 objects online. But we do everything. Where, where does anybody find what you have? M plus, M plus. You just put M, M plus collection and it just okay. comes straight cool. up. Yeah. Where do you recommend they start? <clears throat> Wherever the icon lands, because you know the the it's a rhizomatic um, digital world, and those who are interested in the digital will find their way through very very easily. But we do everything in two languages. In Chinese and in English, so everything has to be translated properly and understood mm -hmm. in both languages. Mm -hmm. um, we are also looking at digital commissioning. For us, we, were, we work with living, living artists, so commissioning mm -hmm. is a very important part of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, what I should have mentioned, I realized I didn't show you, was that our design of the museum has the tower, and you saw in the video, um, Lynn talking about the, the facade of M plus tower. The facade is actually embedded with LED and it's a screen. It's a, it's a gigantic screen, 60 meters high by 110 meters across. And, and Hong Kong, of course, has a lot of lights and a lot of commercial digital screens as part of its landscape, um, nightscape. And we will add to that with our digital screen for artist commissions. So that's another form of digital experience, and um, and we would like that digital screen to be an interactive one because so many people have um, used interactive um, methodologies on their mm -hmm. on their phones on their smartphones, and so the first commissions will in fact involve that kind of dialogue with our audiences. Um, we do we digitize. Um, content in the sense that we uh, work with all artists 
talks and so on and have mm. them online and we'll build an archive of that material mm. but we're also collecting digital art so young head chang heavy industries is a very good example that took you know it was uh, I, I remember when we announced that acquisition people were you know the media were very fascinated but confused they said but it's already available online why would you acquire it <laughs> you know what is this relationship <coughs> And, what, and we had to explain that a certain number of works are available online by Young Hei Chang Heavy Industries, but there's a whole lot of work that they've done that isn't available, that they want to have the museum have acquire for posterity's sake. So we've done that, and they're cataloging into the future. Because the digital world is also changing so fast, museum will become refuge as well for that change, just just like 35 mil and 16 mil film is now today, mm -hmm. it's it's in only it's really museums that show those forms of um, early moving image. You have three cinema theaters in <coughs> M plus. What's uh, what's your approach on collecting film? Collecting film is <coughs> complex because film is a licensed me media. And so we need to work with licensing as a way of managing film. Film will, of course, we will screen, but we are looking and exploring the idea of restoration, which um, is a very complex idea, but you know, many museums undertake it, especially when we know that if we don't restore, we will lose that material and we cannot afford to lose it. Uh, but film, film is the medium of our time, as is, as is digital, whereas you know, paintings and sculptures come from much earlier times. So you mentioned commissioning for, I get a little bit more of a picture, the, you're facing postcard Island Hong Kong, yeah. and Island Hong Kong is facing you. So you've got this display side of the building. How big is the screen there? 60 meters high by 110 meters across. Okay. Uh, which I guess from Hong Kong Island will be... How big oh, it's, it's actually, it'll, it'll look like a huge high-definition screen hmm. from Hong Kong Island. But it's actually a very interesting screen. It's a lenticular screen because the podium is a public space for people to go and um, gather around. It's a garden. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the podium and you look up, it's a sharp angle. Mm -hmm. You can see a, an image in a high definition from that angle as well. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, we should be able to do two different images, mm -hmm. one for those sitting on the podium and the others across on Hong Kong Island, but we are yet to find out if that is the case. <laughs> yeah, Say one, country, one country, two systems. <laughs> what other kinds of commissioning do you think you'll be doing? We will commission for um, the institution's collections as well. Mm -hmm. um, we've already begun because the spaces that um, Herzog and Imuran have designed for us um, encourage that kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some museum spaces are very large for us in M+, and they need site-specific work to mm -hmm. enliven and, and give a different perspective onto space. So we will use um, commissioning to manage that. I'm curious where Australia fits into this, because you're 
your professional past, much of it is in Australia, That's right. working with Australian uh, art, I assume, in, in the gallery and museum there. Um, say a little bit about that sequence for you. It's a very interesting history for me because I spent 20 years in the Queen's and Art Gallery in Brisbane, and when I joined in the early 90s, it was a very small, you know, like a regional gallery, and it had no, it had a, a fine collection of Australian art, but nothing of significance. And the then director, Doug Hall, decided that he would establish a project called the Asia-Pacific Triennial of Contemporary Art, mm. and the first one was in 93. And I joined then, and we, and I was able to persuade him to start collecting. And we worked with advisors, um, and we built inside the um, Brisbane Museum a curatorial expertise, and we began acquiring Asian contemporary art in the early 90s. So we mm. were very, very early to begin that collection mm. development. And it was frankly a blank page when it came to Western institutions. Mm. But I was always asked, why is Australia doing this at that time? Mm. And Australia was doing this, I would always answer, because it is about our neighbourhood mm. and our demography. It's uh, full of migrant people and many migrants from Vietnam, mm -hmm. from China, from India, from uh, Korea. It's, it's uh, Sri Lanka, I'm Sri Lankan born. Mm. The diasporas in, in Australia are a very significant part of community. Mm. And and to have coherent uh, communities, you have to have diverse points of view. Mm -hmm. And it was very forward-thinking at that time for Doug to be able to persuade government to fund what was then an unknown project of what is contemporary Asia-Pacific art in the 90s, late, late 80s, beginning that research. And it led to the formation of a very important collection that I drove mm. and have always advocated for the importance of contemporary Asian Pacific mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. That work of 20 years meant also in Brisbane we built, we expanded the museum and built a second museum, a second site, mm -hmm. because of the collections of contemporary Asian art, which were often monumental in scale mm -hmm. um, and needed space. Mm. And then I joined the Archive of New South Wales to work on the expansion in Sydney of that state institution, working with the Japanese architect Sana. Mm. And after four years of working with, in Sydney, um, three and a half years, I was um, I couldn't resist the would resist Hong Kong and M plus because it had felt for me my life's journey was always advocating for the importance of these other art histories that the canons needed to be expanded. Mm -hmm. So Hong Kong felt like the perfect place to do just that. So it seems like Australia, during a couple of decades you were in the thick of, there was kind of shifting its thinking and its activities from seeing itself as a branch of the British Empire uh, to being a basically an Asian country, a country in Asia and of Asia increasingly. Is that yeah. Yeah, no, it's out. absolutely, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very good observation because it, it is also about the, the, you know, who, are, who am I, who are we? 
these questions were very important questions and I think they're important questions wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And it's important to look inside your community as much as outside and the and your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And Australia is in that neighborhood and that relationship to Britain um, was severed, you know. Right. And yes, there was a lot of looking back to the motherland as it were, but that mm -hmm. motherland was drifting further and further away. And other lands were coming much closer. Mm -hmm. And important histories, including um, indigenous, Aboriginal histories in Australia, mm -hmm. were a very important advocacy role in terms of opening up uh, that looking. And, and that happened in the 70s in Australia, mm -hmm. that um, prominent voice of Aboriginal Australia being also inside museum. There's contemporary Aboriginal yes, art, I assume. Very strong, very, mm -hmm. very vital, strong part of uh, all museums in um, in Australia, but also um, cultural identity. Will some of that show up in, in M plus? Yes, in fact, one of the works I just showed, Tracy Moffat, mm -hmm. is an indigenous Australian artist, and she's mm -hmm. very interested in those relationships of migration mm -hmm. and um, belonging. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, <laughs> how far does Asia reach? Um, you get Polynesian art, uh, Maori art from New Zealand, uh, and then how, how far well, it will, it will all be the world. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, how far west does Asia go in the perspective of yeah, the museum I mean, collecting Asian art? Um, for us, definitions are West Asia, which is the, you know, the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We have Iranian artists mm -hmm. as, as, as mm -hmm. part of our collection. Okay. Um, but um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, they're part of the Pacific, really, and mm -hmm. they are, you know, or Australia is on the kind of fulcrum of Pacific and Asia. Mm -hmm. um, both function, you know, both feature in a lot of the work done in Australia, but it's 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 a fluid space, mm -hmm. and in the end, you look for works that speak to the collections that you're building, and and that's why that international perspective, the global world of the collections that I showed give you an idea of the attitude and the and how we approach that that kind of collection interest. But I think it's very important that you're alive to the world. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that exhibitions can't happen from other parts of mm -hmm. you know, other parts of the world, whether it's New Zealand or Africa. What's the sort of mechanism of collection, the mechanism of selecting? When you were working in Australia, were you basically going to artists and to studios, or you going to galleries, or where are you going yes. to find it? It's you, and who else is finding this art? Yeah, it's curators. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of fundamental research, curatorial work that takes place. Um, and travel, and going and visiting, and seeing is a very important part of that work. Mm -hmm. um, and the Asia-Pacific Triennial in Brisbane gave us that three-year beat which meant you had a very nice um, rhythm to the research. Mm -hmm. um, in, in Hong Kong, of course, as soon as you leave Hong Kong, you're traveling. Mm -hmm. Even on the 15-minute express train into Shenzhen, mm -hmm. that is travel. Um, mm -hmm. And Hong Kong travels all the time. People are always traveling. It's kind of 
in the DNA of mm. Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. and, and travel is also traveling, other people traveling to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. That exchange, that cosmopolitan energy is a very important part of Hong Kong's identity. So we are always alert and alive to that. And people come all the time to speak, to, um, to go and see, to see each other, to network. And then how does Hong Kong in this respect, in, in relation to art, relate to other cities like Singapore or Shanghai or Beijing or whatever, um, or cities in India? Um, City to city, and city to city is where a lot of the action is in civilization anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and how does that play out for you guys? You know, cities, um, it's, it's an interesting question um, because the, you know, for vast parts of, of Asia, urbanization is a, is a huge energy driver and focus, but also large parts of Asia are rural still. And you know you have many many people living outside the city, mm. and in many ways, say in terms of architecture, the most innovative architecture is taking place outside cities mm. because that's where the experiment can take place mm -hmm. in its uh, most lively form, mm -hmm. and especially in mainland China, where some of the second tier cities, which are still vast, I might add, mm. um, do you know are really interested in. Uh, sustainability, for example, and they'll look at um, solar energy as powering those cities. It's mm -hmm. very, very interesting to see. But urbanization is very easy to understand and see within Asia because they are, they're such large, you know, the cities are enormous. Mm -hmm. But the rural world is as important to, to think about in Asia. Mm. Mm. Um. Vincent asks, what mechanisms are in place to counter the influence of the government on the curation process? It's important art is often uh, politically um, tricky. Yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very good question. Um, the structure, the governance structures for M plus um, are based on global museum best practice. So we have our own board. Um, and on our board, um, collectors and you know, uh, senior uh, um, stakeholders in Hong Kong who are understanding what it means to make a museum. The Kowloon, West Kowloon district has a board as well because it's a, it's a large undertaking. No kidding. And up until two years ago, the chair of the West Kowloon District Board was always the chief secretary of Hong Kong, which is the second in charge of the city. So it was completely linked to government. Uh, but when the current chief executive was chief secretary and was the board chair of West Kowloon District Authority, she visited many museums, including here in San Francisco, MoMA, and, and part of the education process for her was that she understood that it was actually much better not to have that direct um, relationship with government for both sides, for both of us. Mm -hmm. And when she became chief executive, she, um, she didn't, the, the, the 
uh, chair of Escalon board no longer became, was the chief secretary, but she appointed Henry Tang, who has, who knows politics very well because he was in politics, but is no longer. And that immediately changed the relationship um, to content. And, mm. and um, it's very important for M Plus that we have an independent uh, curatorial practice and that our integrity, in fact, lies in that ability to make those decisions. So the governance helps, and govern governance is now very good <laughs> for M Plus and West Kowloon. Um, but I think the other part of, of the work in front is to ensure that we continue to, to practice with courage. Uh, well, courage is very useful at a time of what looks like serious transition in Hong Kong. Um, and you'll be playing out these relationships clearly with uh, whoever knows how the governance mm -hmm. of the large system is going to uh, keep changing for a while, it sounds like. When can we come visit uh, <laughs> Well, the museum is, um, We'll have our construction will be complete <coughs> by March next year. And it's a very large museum, 65,000 square meters of construction. Um, and as soon as we've got our, our licenses, our occupation permits, which should happen by April next year, between nine to 12 months, we will be ready for the public. We have storage in seven different parts of the world right now, so mm -hmm. we need to gather the collections, and prepare for public. So uh, will you try to open sort of the entire museum all at once, or, or do it by stages? We want to in open the entire the museum at entire. once. <laughs> that sounds like 2021. Perhaps. <laughs> you know, we do very, we, uh, in, uh, there's an uh, incredible energy inside mm -hmm. the city, and, um, I remember doing a project in Brisbane where I uh, invited a group of artists from what was called the Long March Project in Beijing, and we were building our expansion for Queensland Art Gallery at the time. And their proposal was, you're taking too long, let me bring the workers and we'll build your museum in half the time. Ah. <laughs> that was their problem. But I mean, it feels like that in Hong Kong when you look at this, the scale of uh, the M plus building and how fast it's it's mm -hmm. grown. It was uh, we broke earth in 2013, and you know we'll be prepared to open within uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, seven long. years. You know, and that's um, Herzog and Demora always say this is their fastest museum building project that they have ever undertaken. And they have undertaken some pretty big ones, including the Diang here. Mm -hmm. So um, for them, they feel that this is for the scale and the, uh, and the structural engineering that had to take place to make M-plus come up mm -hmm. out of the ground. This has been an incredibly fast architectural journey. But at the same time, as you saw from the construction workers, there is you know, insight into saying, we've got to get this right. Art concrete, we have to make it good. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it is fast. Fast, and it looks very good. I can't wait to see it. Thank you Thank so you. much for coming. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this seminar, you might enjoy other talks in this series, and also check out Long Now's other podcast about long-term thinking, Conversations at the Interval. Thank you for listening.